Wait, wait, wait. Don't drink that. What? Why? It has Ovacetol in it. Oh my God. What's going to happen to me? Nothing. It's a supplement for women with PCOS. I mix it with water and it doesn't taste like anything. Ovacetol is a special blend of inositols and it helps heal my cravings, regulate my period, and improve my mood. So don't accidentally drink it. Oh my god, I'm getting a period. No, it just helps with blood sugar control. For many women with PCOS like me, insulin resistance is one of the root issues underneath all these awful symptoms. Here's how it works, babe. When we eat, it's broken down into sugar, and the lovely insulin hormone takes that and gives it to our cells to get burned up. But when our cells are resistant, insulin is left floating around in the bloodstream, making us think we're still hungry, leading to awful cravings. Not just that, insulin triggers high testosterone which affects my period and my mood so i'm not getting my period no babe you're not but i am this episode is brought to you by pure spectrum cbd sirak and i have been taking cbd and we are loving it i'm holding the tincture right now talian can you open your mouth please now yeah i'm gonna give you a dosage (laughs) now keep it there for 60 seconds Mm -hmm. while she does that let me tell you the great benefits of cbd for pcos studies show it reduces cortisol Mm improves insulin sensitivity Mm -hmm. reduces inflammation Mm -hmm. you can go to purespectrumcbd.com now to order and use the code the sisterhood one word at checkout for 20 percent off natalian hold it for 30 seconds longer while the sisters enjoy the show (laughs) welcome to a sister and her mister a podcast where we show you the real behind the scenes of how we balance the pcos lifestyle in our marriage gluten and dairy free I'm Talene, your fellow sister and registered dietitian. And I'm Sirak, husband, engineer, and PCOS personal trainer. We're going to make PCOS a little less overwhelming and a lot more fun. Hello, sisters. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, we have a special guest on the episode, Dr. William Davis, cardiologist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Wheat Belly. Published in 2011, Wheat Belly introduced the world to the hidden dangers of modern wheat and gluten, revolutionizing the conversation around health and weight loss forever. Thank you, Dr. Davis, for joining us today. Yes, we're glad to join you. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. I remember so many years ago, was it like eight years ago, um, when your book first came out, I was working at a gluten and dairy free grocery store. And it was at the center of the grocery store on its own table, like in a pile. I was like, what is this? And I jumped right on it, started reading it. And it was just so life changing because it was around the time that I was starting to go gluten and dairy free and talking with naturopathic doctors and really changing the trajectory of my PCOS journey. So it was just a great book to stumble upon then. It's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast now. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, the, the conversation uh, will we'll start with like basically gluten first. And we were reading your book and we read the, the, uh, the modification of wheat and how it has changed since the 50s until the 70s. Uh, could you kind of explain to us how wheat has changed and why it's different for um, human consumption these days? Sure. You know, it was not done for evil purpose. It was done for agricultural purposes. So farmers, agricultural scientists, geneticists, etc., tried to change traditional wheat into something that was yielded more per acre to help feed people. So it wasn't a bad thing. So they put wheat through a whole series, literally thousands of different experiments, and they ended up with something called high-yield semi-dwarf wheat. That is, wheat that no longer stands as high as your shoulders to a grown adult, but stands as high as your knees. 
and was very thick, had large seeds, had an extended seed head, but yielded four, five, eight times more per acre. So it was a huge success if your goal was feeding the, the, the world. Mm. Problem, they, they cultivated many new problems in this wheat. For instance, they selected strains that had increased phytate content because it provided pest resistance. They mm. selected strains with greater wheat germaglutinin content because it was also a pest resistance uh, uh, component. But those two things are very toxic to humans. They yeah. selected strains with different forms of the gliadin within gluten and one of the changes, for instance, is a 400% increase in celiac disease because of the change in the gliadin protein within gluten. So in other words, they changed it to increase yield per acre, make it more pest resistant, help farmers, but they in, in effect delivered a very toxic poisonous grain to the American public. At the same time, they also did not do any testing on animals or humans, right? For this new right exactly yeah. right unlike a drug say there's no need there's no regulation saying you have to change even if it's hugely changed by the way these were changes that predate the methods of gene splicing genetic engineering genetic modification so these methods were much more crude less focused much worse than genetic modification yet they made it to your store shelves with no testing no questions asked at all yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yes. I was reading in your book how you explained that this new strain of wheat is able to produce foods like um, donuts, for example, that wouldn't have been able to be produced if you were creating it with the old strain of wheat that's called einkorn, I think. So one of the uh, advantages in baking of the modern strains of wheat is the glutenin protein within gluten <laughs> is that stretchy. It's a polymeric chain of, of, uh, of amino acids. And it has this unique stretchability, or the scientists say viscoelasticity, but it's that thing that allows the unique properties of wheat that allows a pizza maker to, you know, throw the pie up in the air and make donuts, make all kinds of odd configurations. So it's a baker's dream, but it is a human consumer's nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like related to the um, uh, gliadin that you met, we mentioned earlier. Gliadin. Gliadin. Um, <laughs> it was like a, what, what, what I remember reading, like it's like an opiate receptor in the brain and it kind of like stimulates a lot of people's um, appetite so much so that um, you can consume 400, uh, 440 more calories per day. Yeah, this is a big problem for your ladies with polycystic ovary because the gliadin protein acts as an opioid. So one of the things we have to accept is that grains – are really seeds of grasses. And humans, we just don't have the enzymes that allow us to break down the proteins from seeds of grasses. You know, we, we never stumble on a wheat field or a corn field or a grass field and say, hallelujah, we're gonna eat like kings for the next <laughs> two weeks. When you're, so, so humans simply cannot digest the proteins of the seeds of grasses. With the gliadin protein, Sometimes it stays intact, and that, by the way, causes the intestinal permeability that leads to autoimmune diseases, but sometimes it's partially digested. Not, so if you eat a piece of pork chop or an egg, you break it down, those proteins, into single amino acids. When you consume the gliadin protein of wheat, you break it down to four or five amino acid-long peptides. But those peptides are able to cross into the brain and bind to the opioid receptors, where they don't make you high, but they stimulate appetite. They stimulate appetite hugely. And that's why people who have a big bowl of pasta, 
may be filled to bursting. You may remember this. You're bursting full, yet you're still hungry. It's such an unnatural state. But the wonderful thing is once you get rid of it, and by the way, go through a four or five day process of a modest opioid withdrawal syndrome, nausea, headache, fatigue, depression, lasts about five days, but then you're miraculously freed from hunger. And that's what makes it so much easier than doing dopey things like cutting calories, pushing the plate away, cutting fat. By the way, all those things, cutting calories, cutting fat causes gallstones. Mm -hmm. And your ladies are very prone to gallstones. They need to know that, cutting calories and often cutting fat. And we now know with confidence when you do that, many people develop gallstones within four weeks, a great many people develop gallstones within uh, three months, as many as 55 to 62% of people, depending on the mix of people in, the, in these studies, up to 55 to 62% of people in these studies develop gallstones. So a woman with polycystic ovary who cuts her calories because there's a, there's a weight gain tendency, right? Polycystic ovary. If you do that, you get gallstones, which is no small matter, by the way. So we never cut calories. We never cut fat. That's yeah. very on point. A lot yeah. of women with PCOS have their gallbladder removed. Yeah, yep. especially like in the first thing that uh, a lot of them, um, they hear when they go to like a doctor who's not very well informed on this is to, oh, just lose weight by cutting your calories, cutting out carbs completely, cutting out fat and things like this. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they end up, you know, suffering and going through more symptoms. Yeah either suffering from gallbladder issues or from eating disorders because of that addictive feeling that, you know, perhaps if they're gluten sensitive, that gluten would be having on them. Mm. And speaking of which, the, you were talking about the morphine-like effect that gluten can cause in the brain, um, creating an addictive behavior towards it. Can you tell us more about how this affects our appetite and that feeling of being hungry all the time and also how insulin resistance can contribute to that as well. So exactly right. The gliding causes this incessant, unrelenting hunger. So you have breakfast at 7. You're hungry at 8.30 or 9. You have a snack. You're hungry again at 10.30 or 11. You're counting the minutes to lunch. You have lunch. You're hungry at 2. And that's why dietitians say really stupid things like <laughs> eat, eat many small meals every two hours, which is a terrible way to eat. So instead, take away this unnatural stimulant of appetite, the glidin-derived opioid peptides, go through withdrawal, and then you're miraculously freed. Food tastes better, by the way. There's a transformation in your taste perception and things you thought were formerly tasty goodies will now be sickeningly sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And foods like Brussels sprouts taste delicious. So there's a complete transformation of taste that really makes it easier. People say, I can't do that. I, I love my pizza and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's much easier than people think. And by the way, we can re recreate foods like pizza and cheesecake and muffins and cookies with, with benign replacement ingredients. Yeah. Yeah, With yeah. insulin resistance, so your listeners know that insulin resistance is a major fundamental driving effect in polycystic ovary. So what, we, what I do in my programs is we get rid of insulin resistance. We don't use idiocy like metformin or uh, insulin injections or biotic. We don't do any of that stuff. What we do is we take away the foods that provoke insulin resistance, wheat, grains, and sugars, because anything that provokes a rise in blood sugar is accompanied by a rise in insulin. 
And that repetitive cycle over and over and over again generates insulin resistance. So we take away the foods that cause that. Then we address the common nutrient deficiencies that are common in modern people, not because of the diet, not because of loss of grains, but because of modern habits. So most of us work indoors, for instance, wear clothes more outside that covers much of the body's surface area. And so we don't get enough vitamin D. If you live in a Northern climate like me, you can't get vitamin D much of the year. So we take vitamin D. We drink filtered water. We have to. You can't drink water from a river or stream. It's got sewage and farm runoff and pesticides, et cetera. So we have to filter the water. The city may filter it. You may filter it in your home, but water filtration removes uh, virtually all magnesium. We have to supplement magnesium. That plays a role in insulin responses. So we supplement vitamin D, major contribution reversing insulin resistance, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, major player because one of the effects of omega-3 fatty acids is it activates an enzyme in your intestinal lining called alkaline phosphatase that disables bacterial toxins like Mm -hmm. lipopolysaccharide because those bacterial toxins are a major contributor to insulin resistance. We get thyroid back in order by starting with iodine and addressing thyroid uh, measures. And then we take steps to cultivate a healthy microbiome. Put that all together and you have massive reversal of insulin resistance and the ladies lose weight without even trying, without cutting calories, of course. (laughs) They lose weight because their appetite's been diminished by cutting out glide and dry opiate peptides. When we drop, so these ladies, let's say we have a woman who's got polycystic ovary and she's 190 pounds, let's just say. Her fasting insulin might be something like 80 microunits. It should be two or three. So the, that's because the muscles, the brain, liver are resistant to insulin. So the pancreas overcompensates by massively outpouring excessive quantities of insulin. Well, that causes weight gain or causes or blocks weight loss. So we need to drop that insulin, drop insulin resistance. So ladies who do this, see their insulins drop, plummet down to single digits they lose weight, their blood pressure comes down, they have to get off their blood pressure medicines, their blood sugars come down, they often have to stop their blood sugar medicines, uh, that hair recedes. And I have numerous pregnant moms or, or, or current moms now who regain fertility doing this. Mm. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the impact of wheat on insulin resistance and how amylopectin A, I read in your book about how it spikes your blood sugar more than table sugar itself. Yes, excellent. So amylopectin A is very unique. So there are different forms of amylopectin in the world, like legumes, like black beans and kidney beans have something called amylopectin C, and that's much less digestible. So it doesn't generate the same kind of extravagant rises in blood sugar that the amylopectin A of grains do. So my, my favorite example is you, if you eat two slices of whole wheat bread, your blood sugar goes higher than eating six teaspoons of table sugar. It's extravagant. It's a very simple reason. There's a lot of the enzyme amylase in the mouth mm-hmm. and in the stomach, and it's very efficient at breaking down that amylopectin A. And so your blood sugar goes wet. Now, when blood sugar goes, spikes up high, it often overshoots mm-hmm. and drops. And that's when you get the kind of, fogginess, crabbiness, and hunger at about 90 minutes or so after consuming anything with grains or sugar. But that repetitive cycling of high blood sugar, high blood insulin causes uh, resistance to insulin. And that just uh, uh, 
cause a vicious cycle where you get more and more insulin resistant, your fasting insulin levels go higher and higher and higher. It really is very common to see levels of 30, 50, 60, 90 in ladies with polycystic ovary when it should be two or three. So we're not talking about a 10% or 30% worse situation. We're talking about tenfold, 30-fold worse situation. But the, 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 the magic here is getting rid of insulin resistance is very, very easy. But it won't come in a pill. So if you take metformin, if you take Bieta, if you get Farsiga or insulin injections, all that does is reduce blood sugar it doesn't, by the way, save you from all the complications of diabetes like blindness, kidney disease, peripheral neuropathy, uh, gastroparesis, heart disease, uh, dementia. So all that continues, but that's how big pharma, that's how the healthcare system works. They treat the top symptoms. They don't address the cause. So you and I are going to address the cause. Your ladies will address the cause. So diet and all the nutrients that factor into insulin resistance, and then ladies become insulin sensitive, they're slender, lose their hair, become pregnant, become fertile, mm -hmm. if they want. Very great explanation. Yeah. Uh, a little off topic, just want to make sure you're not hearing the dog barking oh. outside, right? <laughs> no, I don't hear a thing. My okay, husband good. is so into sound quality, like he's like a, sweating right now. The dog has been barking for the last 10 minutes. I'm like sweating, <laughs> thinking, oh my God, the audio is picking up. And like, you're explaining something so perfectly that I want to make sure it's being heard, right? So, okay. Just wanted to make sure that like, you're not, not coming hearing. through at all. Okay. Great. At my end. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I swear in half of our podcasts, Sirak is like fumbling with the audio and like trying to make it perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. So where were we? Okay. Insulin resistance and how we can impact insulin resistance and affect women with PCOS. Yeah. And also you had mentioned how insulin resistance, because a lot of women with PCOS struggle with abdominal weight gain mm -hmm. and the book is called Wheat Belly. So um, insulin resistance and how that triggers weight gain in the abdomen. And then that triggers inflammation. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah. Unfortunately, that this whole cycle of insulin resistance, high blood sugar, high blood insulin cultivates, uh, as you point out, visceral fat. That is not fat on the surface, just below the skin surface, not fat on the backside, not fat in the thighs. Most ladies get it right in the abdomen. If you had the love handle kind of look or a protruding belly, it means deep inside. So that's not visceral fat, but it tells you that you have visceral fat deep inside and circling the intestines and circling the liver, the kidneys, and other organs. And that fat, oddly, is very different from fat elsewhere. If you looked at it under a microscope, you would see that it's filled with inflammatory cells. It kind of looks like pus and, and, and infectious, but it's not infectious, of course. But that visceral fat emits numerous uh, cytokines or compounds that uh, export uh, inflammation to other parts of the body. So these ladies are very inflamed because of the visceral fat. And then, of course, my colleagues try to treat the inflammation with things like ibuprofen, diclofenac, prednisone, make, which makes the blood sugar much worse, of course, and it causes dysbiosis and <laughs> disrupts bowel flora. There's a, uh, by the way, whenever the conventional docs get involved, they often make the situation worse because they give drugs often that have other consequences that may cover up one phenomenon only leading to other phenomena. So for instance, ladies commonly take say ibuprofen for joint inflammation or for menstrual cycle pain 
Well, that drug has massive effects on disrupting bowel flora composition that makes your polycystic ovary syndrome and insulin resistance much worse. So something as simple as ibuprofen can massively screw up your microbiome such that it makes it much more difficult to undo all the phenomena, especially insulin resistance of polycystic ovary syndrome. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, And like speaking about some of the misconceptions and things like that, uh, we're hearing a lot of research that's showing that like not or like celiac sensitivity versus gluten sensitivity, like that line between is like kind of getting blurred now because some research sh is showing that it may be the same thing. It may just be some sort of gluten insensitivity instead of celiac disease. So like gluten sensitivity is less severe than celiac. No, like it's, it's studies are showing that possibly that that there's a blurred line between what's celiac disease and what's actually gluten sensitivity. Oh, and like, it may be more common in the population of gluten sensitivity than we actually think. Mm. Exactly right. That's become very clear. There is this condition that's not celiac disease, doesn't have the biomarkers for celiac disease, but it still has clear cut abnormalities in the immune response in the intestinal lining, et cetera, mm -hmm. so-called gluten sensitivity, which applies probably to a very big part of the public. The other thing that is not often talked about though, is, you know, if I said, I don't think you should smoke uh, full tar unfiltered cigarettes, but what if I said to you, you should smoke filtered low tar cigarettes. You say you're nuts, right? Because yeah, yeah. they still give you heart disease, lung cancer, et cetera. So just because, some food doesn't contain, let's say, gluten or gliadin, doesn't mean it's therefore safe because there's other things there, just as other things beyond tar and cigarettes that makes it terrible for you. So in wheat and grains, there's wheat germaglutinin. It sounds like gluten, but it's a glutenin. It's called a glutenin because when it contacts blood, it causes blood clots. Mm -hmm. Now, thankfully, it's not absorbed very well, but you ingest it, let's say, in, in a sandwich, and most of it makes its way all the way through the gastrointestinal tract and is not digested at all. It's impervious to stomach acid, bile, enzymes, et cetera. But it is highly toxic to the gastrointestinal system. For instance, it blocks the hormone, cholecystokinin. Mm -hmm. And all that means is if you eat something containing wheat uh, and your gallbladder is triggered to squeeze, right, to expel its bile, that's blocked. When, the, when you have wheat in the vicinity, because that, that wheat German gluten blocks that CCK, that cholecystokinin hormone. It blocks the, the expression of bile. It blocks the release of pancreatic enzymes. So it messes up your digestion. And that, of course, cultivates dysbiosis, disruptions of bowel flora, and also cultivates gall, gallstones, because your gallbladder is allowed to have bile stasis and crystal formation. And that's how you get, that's one of the ways you get stones. In a you can imagine that cutting fat cutting calories, yet including healthy whole grains is an absolute surefire way to have gallstones. Mm -hmm. That's true. And just to clarify to anyone who doesn't understand this, because it took me a while to understand this in the beginning, wheat, no, gluten is a protein found in wheat. Wheat contains other proteins similar to gluten that can cause to have toxic toxic effects on our body mm -hmm. so wheat is the plant gluten is the protein in it wheat also has other things yeah. in it yeah that's okay. good for explaining that mm -hmm. one of the wonderful things that happens when the ladies lose their wheat is they also take away the source of phytates so recall that phytates were uh farmers selected strains of wheat rich in phytates because it provided resistance against molds and insects 
And so the phytate content of modern wheat is much higher, but phytates, when we consume it, bind all minerals. It binds calcium, magnesium, manganese, um, iron, zinc, and others. That's why so many ladies have iron deficiency anemia. They get it often from menstrual cycles, but they, it gets much worse when you add the phytates of wheat. And I've had ladies who had hemoglobins, normal hemoglobin level, the blood's about 12, 13, something like that. These ladies will have six or seven. They're always tired and cold, and breathless, and they get iron, prescription iron, doesn't work. They get injected iron, doesn't work. They get a bone marrow biopsy, there's nothing wrong. And they even get blood cell transfusions, and it just brings their hemoglobin up temporarily for a month or two, it tops. And then it goes right back down. And then when they go wheat and grain-free, their hemoglobin normalizes within two weeks. But it's a, it's a vivid illustration of the power of the phytates. So, you know, because what's ironic is we've all been told, eat grains for the B vitamins and folate and fiber and right. for nutrition, when the opposite is actually true. Grains actually impair nutrient status dramatically. Yeah, and it's just full of carbs. Like, there's no protein really in much grains. Like, you re really need to have, like, the, to be more conscious of, like, the protein to carb ratio and things mm -hmm. like that, especially for women with PCOS. That's right. And also, going back to what you said about phytate, so I just want you to repeat that because sometimes it's hard to grasp all of the details. Phytates bind those minerals together and then makes it difficult to absorb them. Then people are suffering from iron deficiency and anemia and getting blood transfusions. Exactly right. So it, the phytates bind any, any mineral with a positive charge. So magnesium is a positively charged. Magnesium, very important, right? We're not getting it as we talked about in our drinking water, so we supplement it. But if you eat grains, let's say a, a sandwich, you bind most of the magnesium in your gut and you poop out the magnesium. And so that amplifies magnesium deficiency, especially if you're not taking magnesium supplements. So magnesium deficiency, which leads to insulin resistance, hypertension, a lot of the phenomena of polycystic ovary, um, leads to heart rhythm disorders, not uncommon to have premature atrial contractions and atrial fibrillation with magnesium. You lose your zinc, you poop out the zinc, and that impairs your immunity real important during a pandemic, right? Yeah. It, it increases likelihood of skin rashes, all kinds of other phenomena. It binds calcium. Everyone knows what happens with that. In other words, this idea that you must have grains for nutrition is absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. The opposite is true. Consuming grains, yes, provides carbohydrate calories, a little bit of, pro little bit of protein calories, but impairs nutrient status, particularly with minerals. Yeah, it's especially what you said about like focusing on the things that are helpful. Like it's funny that in this day and age, we have to think about our water because they've now, they're giving purified water to the masses and this purified water doesn't have all the minerals and nutrients that regular, you know, spring water does. And it's something that we ourselves, we always have spring water because we know that there are uh, minerals in there. But like, I think majority of the population is getting this purified water. That's not giving them the full benefits of something that's so important, water. It's so interesting. We have to question everything. And even, um, like you said, whole grains, like I'm a registered dietitian. So in school, they always had mentioned yeah. whole grains and, you know, heart healthy and this and that. And I'm like, I'm gluten free. Like, no, this isn't going to work out for me, this whole wheat bread. Yeah. But as you said in your book, you know, whole grains are spiking blood sugar and insulin levels more 
than other foods that are yeah. deemed healthy in the registered dietitian world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, what would be, so um, kind of going back to polycystic ovary syndrome, what would be like your, the, some like basic steps that you would out outline to a woman that's been diagnosed with PCOS or maybe has had PCOS for several years? I know every woman is different, but like, are there any um, general steps that you would, that you would have them take? See, I look at polycystic ovary syndrome as a, a woman who's got maybe size 11 feet. In other words, if, if someone had, if a woman had size 11 feet, we wouldn't say, we should chop off all your toes so that you have a size 8 foot. That'd be stupid, right? In sure other is. words, a size, <laughs> maybe an imperfect analogy, but a size 11 foot on a woman is just a variant of normal. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just a, a variant. I, I view polycystic ovary syndrome as a variant of normal. You know, 15% of the female population has it. How can it be abnormal? It's just a variant. It's a genetically determined variant. Yeah. But it makes the, these ladies much more susceptible to all the mistakes we've made in the modern world. Mm -hmm. The wrong diet where we cut fat and eat uh, grains and exposed to sugars. We don't get magnesium because of our filtered water. We don't get sufficient vitamin D. We don't get iodine because we've been told to cut our salt. Very bad advice, by the way. Uh, and thereby don't get the iodine. And many ladies have iodine deficiency, even sufficient to have goiters and large thyroid glands. And a woman with polycystic ovary who develops hypothyroidism is, a, is in deep trouble. It really amplifies all the phenomena, makes it much worse. But the solution is so easy. It's iodine. Now, bowel flora is the toughest thing that we do. I, I should ma mention magnesium. We supplement magnesium also. But bowel flora is the toughest because we have this complication in bowel flora. I was guilty of thinking that all of us have dysbiosis, that is disrupted bowel flora, because we got exposed to glyphosate, right, in corn and soy and sundry in wheat. Glyphosate is an herbicide in Roundup, but it's also a potent antibiotic. Mm. Many people don't know that, but it's an antibiotic of the worst sort because it's an antibiotic effective against probiotic species oh. like lactobacillus. And it's ineffective against the pathogens like E. coli, citrobacter, enterococcus, um, uh, pseudomonas, uh, uh, salmonella. So exposure to glyphosate, disrupted bowel flora, exposure to Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs disrupts bowel flora. Exposure mm -hmm. to stomach acid blocking drug disrupts bowel flora. Exposure to herbicides and pesticides in food disrupts bowel flora. On and on and on. Bowel flora is... So I was guilty, though, of thinking it was just dysbiosis, that is, disrupted bowel flora composition in the colon. I was wrong. It, it has become clear that at least a third of the U.S. population and probably the majority of ladies with polycystic ovary syndrome have a much more advanced form of dysbiosis called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, meaning all those unhealthy species have proliferated, E. coli, etc., outmuscled the healthy species, and then did something weird. They ascended up into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach. Now, there are telltale signs of this such as intolerance to legumes. These ladies say things like, I can't eat beans, it gives me diarrhea and bowel urgency and bloating and gas, or I can't eat nightshades, or I can't eat um, uh, FODMAPs, I have to follow a low FODMAPs diet, 
or I've been tested for food intolerances and I can't eat this list of 37 foods or something like that, or I can't eat nuts or I can't eat histamine provoking foods. This is all SIBO and you can prove it. Measure breath, hydrogen, gas. I, I, this is the air device, A-I-R-E. I have no relationship with the company, uh-huh. but it came out about a year ago. Oddly, the inventor, very nice guy in Dublin, Ireland, Dr. Angus Short, thought this was a device to navigate a low FODMAPS diet in people with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. So that's, they released it. I got a hold of it. It became clear to me, no, 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 no. This is not just a device for FODMAPS navigation and IBS. It is a device to measure all forms of food intolerance to see if it's SIBO. Oh. So we use this device to map out where bacteria are in your GI tract. And lo and behold, I thought SIBO was uncommon. It is everywhere. Now I mentioned that to you because part of SIBO, 30 feet of bacteria, right? Now bacteria don't live very long. They live for hours. Or maybe days, unlike mm-hmm. us, you know, hopefully we live, we live 70 or more years. So bacteria, rapid turn, 30 feet, rapidly turning over bacteria, living and dying, where when they die, where the, where's all that stuff go? Well, some gets pooped out in the toilet, some gets metabolized by other bacteria, some gets metabolized by you, and a lot of it gets into your bloodstream. And that's the relatively recently discovered process of endotoxemia breakdown products of bacteria and the bloodstream. And that is a major driver of insulin resistance in ladies with polycystic ovary syndrome. Now, the, the test for that process, the blood test for lipopolysaccharide, that's the bacterial breakdown product, is not yet available, but it's going to be available sometime soon. But in the meantime, we all have access to this device, the AIR device. Mm-hmm. They charge $150. You can get coupon codes, get it down to like 130 something like that. And once again, I have no relationship except it's a cool device. Mm-hmm. This is like the glucose monitor finger sticks in diabetics that came out in, ni- in the 1980s. You know, before we had glucose fingers, you, you guys are too young to remember this, but I remember if you had a three-year-old child with type 1 diabetes playing out in the, in the yard and then he, he or she passes out, you don't know if his or her blood sugar is 900 and they're going to go into diabetic ketoacidosis and shock, or whether it's 30, and they're going to die of brain damage in the next three minutes. You can't tell the difference without a finger stick. Yeah. And so that was, so the finger stick glucose game changer yeah. for diabetes. This is the same game changer for intestinal health, mm-hmm. and it is magic in the hands of a woman with polycystic ovary. It costs a little bit, but I'll tell you, the formal testing for hydrogen gas, that's what this tests is much more costly. So it seems like a few dollars, but you can use this over and over and over yeah. again. You can share it with people you're close to because you put your mouth on it uh, yeah. and you can so, help you navigate. So this is like uh, this device, you could basically, let's say, eat something and then um, use that device maybe 30 minutes later and see if you're insensitive to it. Is that the idea behind it? So the key here is, uh, w- w- this is how we do it. Oddly, if you, when you buy, when you ladies buy the device, the instructions that come with the device, are incorrect <laughs> okay. because, and I'm not making fun of, of the, the company Food Marble who makes it, it's just that they didn't know what this device really did. And so I have a, my own protocol for doing this. And that's, I'll tell the ladies, if they, if they want that protocol, it's in my, one of my websites mm-hmm. uh, because you can't get it from the company. Now the company's in the process of updating their instructions. And I, I did tell Dr. Short exactly how we're doing it, which I think is the right way. Mm-hmm. But because when you, when you manufacture something that is potentially a diagnostic device, you have to be careful with the FDA and FTC. 
because they'll shut you down if you say something like test this and diagnosis. See, I can say that, but he can't say that as the manufacturer. So I show you how to use it. We do a day ahead prep with no prebiotic fibers. Then we do a morning of baseline, just blow into it. It talks to your smartphone. It's very nice. nice. And it, you'll register a low value, like 1.2. Then you consume something that generates hydrogen gas. We use prebiotic fibers. So you consume a prebiotic fiber and whatever else you want to. And then you test every 30 to 45 minutes, looking for an uptick in hydrogen gas and a rise of four or more as a positive uh, test. It's a zero to 10 scale. Mm -hmm. And so it tells you, uh, one of the problems we have with SIBO is recurrences. So we take steps also to prevent recurrences. We also take steps, we use herbal antibiotics and some other strategies to eradicate the SIBO. So this is a wonderful device also to detect um, recurrences. But I, I tell your ladies, your listeners all this because the endotoxemia of SIBO is the most underappreciated process. So a woman could do everything right. Diet, right? Loses 73 pounds or whatever. Hemoglobin A1C drops from 6.2% down to 5.3%. Fasting glucose has dropped a lot. Blood pressure's down off, but still left with some residual problems. Maybe a little bit of belly fat maybe a little bit of hypertension, maybe a little bit of a less than perfect fasting glucose. And she says, why, why? Endotoxemia, that is the key. And then you, when you reduce endotoxemia by eradicating the bacteria that have risen all the way up your 30 feet of gastrointestinal now you have dramatic, magnificent control over insulin resistance. That's when your insulin levels drop to two or three or zero. <laughs> and- Oh, sorry. Is this related to leaky gut? So this is intestinal permeability or leaky right. gut. Yes, exactly. Okay. So it's basically testing if your gut is leaky, if you're having intestinal permeability, inflammation, and so on, triggering insulin resistance. So it's testing for the bacterial situation that generates, that generates leaky it. gut. Very now, now think about this. If we combine the intestinal leakiness of SIBO with wheat consumption that, so the gliadin protein you may recall also generates intestinal leakiness. That's how you get autoimmune diseases from the gliadin protein of wheat by the increase in intestinal leakiness. Now put SIBO and wheat together and you have an absolutely disastrous situation. So, but you know, I, I, I say this because you guys know the conventional solutions to polycystic ovary syndrome are metformin mm -hmm. and antihypertensives, and but no right. one's addressing the SIBO. What, so here, here's something you ladies should know. What if you have SIBO uh, and you don't know it or don't care or don't bother, it's too scary or too much trouble, too much hassle, whatever. Well, you're going to have autoimmune diseases down the road like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or rheumatoid arthritis or polymyalgia rheumatic or lupus. Or <laughs> you're going to be much more prone to um, uh, neurodegenerative disorders, including Alzheimer's dementia and Parkinsonism. Mm -hmm. You're going to be much more prone to fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, restless leg syndrome. In other words, a whole constellation of, of conditions are ahead if you do not address the SIBO. So SIBO is not something you want to bury your head in the sand about. But once you get your arms, once your ladies get their arms around what this is, how to manage it, because the doctors don't know. It's very unusual for a doctor to say, okay, Mary, here's, I think you have SIBO. Maybe you tested it yourself, or maybe we tested it formally in the lab or the clinic. 
and you have SIBO, let's talk about how you got it, how we're going to manage it, how we're going to prevent recurrences. That almost never happens. Mm. Even though the science is abundant and very confident, you guys know it takes 20 years, 30 years for the practicing physician to catch up to the science. That's why we have wonderful podcasts like you have. If the doctors were doing their jobs and educating their patients on polycystic ovary syndrome, they would, you wouldn't have to have a podcast, but you have to have a podcast. That's true. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If it was, if doctors were telling their patients that they have metabolic, a metabolic disorder, you know, the lining of their gut is, you know, the permeability is being affected by what they're eating and all of these things, then we wouldn't have a podcast. Yeah, Especially when the research (laughs) has declined like 30, 40% in PCOS in the last five years, they're never going to really catch up because it's... Yeah. This is constantly a topic of conversation on how there isn't research directly, directly correlating um, what we're talking about, wheat and gluten and dairy to, well, dairy, there is one research study correlating it to PCOS. There's a lot of research on gluten yeah. and wheat, and then and there's, disease, we know what like PCOS that. is, and if we put them together, it makes sense, but no one is funding a research study directly on PCOS and gluten consumption. Yeah. Yeah. The struggle is real. <laughs> and the tragedy is it's so darn simple. It really is so darn simple. <clears throat> Diet, a handful of nutrient deficient uh, nutrients that are uh, deficiencies are common in modern people, <clears throat> and then several steps to cultivate a healthy microbiome. Yes. It's, it's, it's so really easy. it's unbelievable the amount of testimonials or people DMing us and commenting on our posts saying how going gluten and dairy free has helped them so much and yeah. their digestion. They feel like a new person. We have this like and that. hundreds of you case can't studies. make it up. Yeah, yeah. that's for a case study. You know, we should point out case. that. One thing we got to be, the ladies have to be careful about is though avoiding gluten-free replacement foods. Yeah. Oh, I was just yeah. going to ask you. Great. Because you have a great section in the book that says, go gluten-free, but don't eat, quote unquote, gluten-free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In that way, so we have a multi-billion dollar industry based on this idea of being gluten-free. You know, it's fine to be gluten-free, but just don't go to the grocery store and buy gluten-free replacement foods because those food companies have chosen to use cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, and potato flour as their replacements. Which, so we, your ladies now know that wheat products raise blood sugar extravagantly. Mm-hmm. What foods are worse? Cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca. It's almost like a cruel joke <laughs> that these things raise blood sugar and thereby contribute to insulin resistance as much as or more than wheat flour and sugar. And yeah. so gluten-free f- replacement foods are horrible. Nobody should be selling them. Nobody should be eating them. People say, oh, well, I have celiac. I have to be gluten-free. Yeah, you, that's fine. Have an avocado. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have yeah. an egg. Or like are- a naturally occurring gluten-free item. Like, for example, sweet, po- sweet potatoes or like any sort of meat, vegetables, fruits. Like there are thousands of naturally occurring gluten-free or wheat-free items. Yeah, especially if people are having such awful digestive issues. It's so hard to process in your body the processed foods that even though they're gluten-free, you know, it's hard to digest them if they're filled with potato flour, like you said. So what are some gluten-free alternatives that you do recommend? So we we return to real single-ingredient foods to start, Mm -hmm. eggs, fish, chicken, beef, uh, green vegetables, 
Um, so basic foods, avocados, things that don't have labels that you find in the produce or the butcher shop. Now, when we get, I, I learned years ago, I told people just eat pure real foods. Well, they'd come back after Thanksgiving or Christmas, 14 pounds heavier and complete metabolic disasters. And I'd say, well, what happened? They say, well, you know, I had to have some of the pumpkin pie and the stuffing and the uh, mashed potato, all that. So what I did was I conceived of ways to recreate all those foods that people, when they did want to indulge in a pizza or a cake or pie or whatever, they could make it with benign, safe ingredients like almond flour, ground golden flaxseed, natural sweeteners, non-caloric sweeteners like stevia, allulose, um, erythritol, monk fruit. Um, use other flours, other nut meals, other seed meals, sunflower seeds, chia. Uh, so there's plenty of other alternatives. You'll have to make it usually. There are some bakeries like in LA, big cities like that. There's one bakery in, in Milwaukee that makes these kinds of things. <laughs> Uh, but for the most part, you have to make them yourself. But uh, your listeners should know that this is not a life of deprivation. It's a life of wonderful, rich food, delicious foods. And I, there's something I call the wheat belly one-way street. And that is, let's say it's the holidays and someone's on the, on the program or, or following your type of lifestyle, but the rest of the family is not. Well, you can make, let's say, a pizza and serve it to the rest of the family. They can eat it. It's delicious. And they'll say, this is great, but you can't eat their pizza without getting sick. If you eat their pizza, you're going to have diarrhea, bloating, abdominal pain, as well as all the metabolic consequences. And so exposure to the gliding protein, it re-triggers appetite, et cetera. So it's a one-way street. They can eat your food. You can't eat their food, but therein is an important lesson, of course. Yeah. It just goes to show who's eating really healthier than the, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So wheat, you know, this was a great podcast. I just loved talking about how wheat is triggering our appetite as an appetite stimulant, mm -hmm. intestinal permeability, yeah. insulin resistance. There's so much research about it. Yeah. And I believe, doctor, um, you created a little gift or a little, uh, like a video source for our listeners. Yeah. If so, any of your listeners want more information, they can find it at undoctored.com backwards slash PCOS, undoctor.com backward slash PCOS. Awesome. We'll find more information. And of and course, they, my Wheat Belly blog has yeah. 2,000 articles on these kinds of things. Uh, of course, my books. If, if they want to dive deep, um, the, 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 the toughest part of all this is managing the SIBO part of it. And so uh, that we manage in our undoctored inner circle. And that's where you, the ladies can find the protocol for using the air device. And until at least uh, Angus Short comes out with his version. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So amazing. So if uh, sisters, if you want to uh, check out Dr. Davis's website, go to undoctor.com and to learn specifically about PCOS, undoctor.com slash PCOS. But he has great resources on his website um, concerning his book, Wheat Belly, uh, the device that we talked about and so much more. Awesome. Thank, Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure talking with you, talking all about wheat and its effect on women with PCOS. Yes. My pleasure. And keep up the good work, guys. Thank you. We appreciate that. All right, sisters. Thank you for listening to this episode. We'll see you guys next week with another one. Take care. Bye. Bye.
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come check out The Sisterhood. It's my monthly membership site where sisters just like you are learning how to move through the stages of PCOS. From stage one, cold and alone at the doctor's office, to stage five, nailing the PCOS lifestyle, gluten and dairy free. Get ready to finally feel in control of your body again. Sisterhood.